with Fuzzy Logic. We're talking about getting creative while walking. We're looking at the physics some of the Egyptians used. We're going to have a chat about drongos getting some food and also talking about a physicist redefining the dictionary. All that and more coming up for your science on a Sunday right here on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. Uh, my name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to finally be here in the studio. Uh, you may have heard from Irish Voice earlier that um, I was running a bit late this morning. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was rushing over from the Triple Six Studios with a lovely Lish Faye was having a chat to me, and we were running a lava lamp experiment, uh, which was a whole lot of fun. And actually, I've ended up with some cake from it, which is absolutely lovely, because Lish does her um, Sunday morning cake, so I've got this beautiful looking chocolate berry black forest cake which i'm keen to dig into uh so luckily i've got jared in the studio with me too good morning jared good morning bright and uh can i just say may the fourth be with you it, oh. is, it is star wars <laughs> day today after all i think on the science show on fuzzy logic we need to make note of that that's very appropriate yes i think so um Fantastic. Well, now, look, now I know that you've uh, just had a brisk walk. Uh, I have over I have. from the ABC Triple Six Studio here to Two Double X, and uh, there's a good chance, Broad, actually, that you might be feeling a little bit more creative as as a result. I'm feeling hungry. Work. You're feeling hungry. I'm feeling well, hungry. It's understandable given that uh, delicious piece of cake. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to dig into there. this. <laughs> Okay, and, well, um, you tell me why I'm feeling creative, too. Well, I'm not sure about the effects of cake on mm. creativity, but uh, research published just last week in the Journal of Experimental Psychology actually suggests that people are more creative when they're walking compared to oh. when they're sitting down, mm. and also somewhat more creative uh, immediately after having been for a walk when they're sitting down. So there seems to be a bit of a carryover effect of the walk on your creativity. Oh, so, how interesting. So these researchers, uh, Marilee Pezzo and Daniel Schwartz at Stanford University, they conducted a series of experiments where they were comparing people's creativity when they were walking compared to when they were sitting down. Yeah. So, so they actually measured creativity using something called an alternate uses test. So, for example, given an object like a button, for example, yeah. you have to brainstorm alternate uses for a button, other than, you know, securing a shirt. So, oh. you know, for example, a button might be used as a stencil to draw a circle yeah. or a replacement wheel on a matchbox car or something like that. Right, okay. So this is how they were measuring creativity. Um, and what they found is that people were more creative when they were walking compared to sitting down. And they were quite careful about the way they set up these experiments. So, mm. for example, there's a chance that maybe it was the the change in environment rather than walking itself, which yeah. was responsible for this increased creativity. But to control for that, they actually had uh, some of their participants, they were pushed around in wheelchairs outside uh, <laughs> doing, doing the same thing. Right. Um, I thought you were going to say they just walked on treadmills within the office or something like that. Oh, well, in fact, they did that oh, they as did well. <laughs> it, was, it was quite comprehensive, and they, they varied the order of, of things. So they had some people who went walking and then did the sitting test. Others did the sitting first and then the walking, and others yeah. did sitting and then sitting. And uh, the results bared out this idea that uh, walking had a positive effect on creativity. And uh, this kind of connects, I guess, to everyday experience. Often 
you get seems to be the case that good ideas can come to you when you're out on a stroll. Yeah. Um, late uh, Apple co-founder Steve Jobs apparently was uh, renowned for his walking meetings. Uh, yeah. Facebook uh, Mark Zuckerberg apparently also sometimes has uh, some walking meetings. So. Yeah. Well, and we had um, some mathematicians from the ANU on air last year who, um, and I think mathemati- mathematics often is a bit of a burst of creativity to solve the problem. And they they used to stand in front of a blackboard for ages and then when they'd struggle they'd go for a walk or do some exercise um Right. One, of, one of the, I think it was Lashy, even had blackboards in his garage where he had his uh, gym equipment set up because he'd be doing gym and then suddenly have the idea that it would spark and so he'd just jump on his blackboard and start writing down. Right, right. Yeah. So does the, the study say anything about whether it's the just the act of doing something different by going for a walk or whether it's the actual physical exertion that promotes the creativity? Well, the actual, the sort of the mechanism underlying this kind of increase in, in creativity, the research aren't, researchers aren't quite sure. I mean, uh, one thing, it might be the case that uh, going for a walk uh, increases your mood. It gives you a more positive mood, and a positive mood state is also associated with uh, you know an increase in creativity. Um, but it appears that this walking um, is distinct from exercise in general. So, mm-hmm. exercise in general is good for you know, sort of your cognitive uh, abilities. Mm. Uh, but the researchers, researchers are suggesting here that walking might be a little bit different because uh, they, in one of their experiments, they not only looked at creativity but also a more focused kind of uh, convergent thinking where uh, it's a slightly different test where the participants were given three words and then they had to think of an additional word that related to each of those things. So there might be, say, um, cottage, uh, Swiss and blue. And so the participant would have to think of a word cheese. that relates to all of those cheese. Yes, well, well I done, win. Brother. <laughs> <laughs> so you would score quite well on this uh, convergent thinking test. But yeah. uh, in one of their experiments, they actually found that people's scores on that convergent thinking test were actually slightly decreased when walking compared to when sitting down. Ah. So there seems to be possibly different things going on for walking with creativity compared to more focused uh, or sort of analytical kind of thinking. So, uh, sort of further research will have to kind of explore those nuances. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting result. I was actually reading um, a book by uh, the Nobel Prize winner, uh, Daniel Kahneman, uh, and he was saying how his, he won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2002. He's a yeah. psychologist, and he, he recounts in the book how his most uh, rewarding intellectual moments were when he would go on walks around the campus with uh, his colleague um, <laughs> Amos Tversky. So uh, it seems that this idea of going for a walk uh, is quite a good one. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for it. I wonder how it ties into this new fad of um, stand-up desks. Yeah. The stand-up desk is like the, the nice happy medium between sitting down and going for a walk so you get the best of both worlds with the focus and the creativity. Well, that might be the case. <laughs> mm, we shall see. Well, speaking of creative people, uh, I've got a story here about the Egyptians and yes. uh, their creativity, because they were pretty creative people to put, well, they weren't just creative, they were very, very smart um, with the, yes. the pyramids and the way they put those together. And the fact they actually built them without modern technology is is pretty impressive. And 
One of the biggest things um, that people know about the Egyptians is through their inscriptions on walls and pictures that they used to transport big, massive stones on large, flat sled-like things across right. the deserts. Um, and the sled had upturned edges, you know, kind of like a toboggan nowadays, except a giant version. Um, and they used to, to, to take them across the desert from the quarries where they were made. Um, but scientists in trying to replicate this would often find that when they'd try to drag stones of similar weight uh, in a similar way, mm-hmm. um, they'd, uh, they'd end up with the sled sinking into the sand, um, which uh, was not that useful at all. And no. it made them wonder how the Egyptians actually went about it. Uh, but then they worked out that what they needed was a bit of moisture. Uh, they found that okay. if they wet the sand just the right amount, and you've probably experienced this on the beach, then it became right. a bit harder and easier to slide across. So I don't know if you've ever... I, I've often been for a run along the beach, and I find it's like that fine line between the really soft sand and the really wet sand where you right. just sink in. You've got to find the, the right line, and then you get that perfect hardness, and you just run along the top. Oh, okay. And uh, that's what the Egyptians were doing. They were making a, a much firmer surface... Um, which also then meant that the sled could slide across more easily um, and they could transport these massive blocks of stone across long distances from the quarry to where they wanted to set up their pyramids or their statues mm, and right. that sort of thing. Um, I, wonder, I wonder how much uh, water is really needed to, to go from a dry sand kind of environment to to get the results that they need for that. I, yeah. Well, that's right. You wouldn't think water was a, a common resource. Um, I suppose the, there, there are rivers in Egypt, there's yeah. the Ganges and all that, but whether... Um, uh, not the Ganges, yeah, what the am Nile. I talking about? The, the Nile. Nile. I'm, yes. I'm in a different continent. <laughs> the Nile. Thank you, Jared. Um, up there that they could yep. pull water from and, and, and tip it out. Mm. But whether it was enough, I don't know. But yeah. the, the scientists in this case... Um, tested their a lab version of the Egyptian sledge in a tray of sand um, and determined, you know, the pulling force and the stiffness of the sand was dependent on how much moisture was present. Um, and uh, the, the scientific reason of it is all because of something called capillary bridges, um, right. which is where the micro droplets of water uh, bind grains of sand uh, to one another through capillary action. Um, so that kind of gets it sort of joining together, holding together, making it a bit stiffer. Mm-hmm. Um but the funniest part of the whole experiment, I think, is the fact that this actually just confirms what the, Egypt, what the Egyptians had already told us. Right. In the fact that on some of their wall carvings, where they show themselves dragging along these massive uh, sledges with massive stones on them, um, they actually have a person on the sledge who's standing at the front with a bottle oh, really? pouring what appears to be some sort of liquid out in front of the sledge while people pull it along. Right. And so clearly what they were saying to us there was, here, I'm pouring water to help make this happen. And it had been drawn up there, obviously, for centuries, since the Egyptian times, and um, no one had really noticed. Yeah, really. <laughs> Until now, and actually worked out what was going on. So, you know, well, you a little bit embarrassing there for Egyptologists and scientists yes, alike. Yes, and, um, a bit of an oversight. Yeah. Although wet sand or dry sand, I still don't think I'd like to be, uh, you know, one of the people on the front sort of lugging lugging the stones along or trying to push them along. No. It should be quite hard work, I think. Well, you, yeah. you'd think so, although the pictures that they do have have quite a number of people yes. pulling. So, <laughs> you know, with enough people right. you can achieve anything, can't you? Well, that's right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> all pull together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 
Well, we've got a whole lot more uh, science coming up today for you on Fuzzy Logic, uh, but... For now, I think we should have some music. And I actually found this song the other day and it, it made me reminisce uh, because this song used to be the basis of our old Fuzzy Logic theme tune. Oh. Yeah, this is uh, Daft Punk with their song, Around the World. It's 11.53 and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX Community Radio. And uh, just before that song, we were talking about uh, the pyramids and how the Egyptians used to squirt the sand to help them drag the giant stones across the deserts. And I've had uh, Fuzzy Logic presenter Rod call into the studio. Rod, are you there, mate? Hey, Broderick, you there? Yes, yes, I've got you on the phone. Uh, Uh, Yeah, look, I couldn't resist because you're talking about pyramids and, you know, people trying to figure out how they move those big rocks. And I think you were right much more on the money than uh, this guy. Well, I posted a link to his video on our Facebook a while ago. And he's got this mad scheme where it's all done with hydraulics. And, and the idea was that they built these little channels out of the Nile and they floated these things. They put a, a string bag around them and they filled them with some sort of float at the top, right? Okay, yeah. And then they floated them on these channels, and then they had these, um, like they built these big pipes up the side of the pyramid, you know, big blocks and everything, and then they floated up them inside these these little channels. And um, the, they had like a double uh, airlock or water lock type system. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just go, well, that's a pretty interesting idea, but... Um, just think of some of the practicalities of how they've got to do this, right? Yeah, that's right. It'd be a bit, um, a bit much, I reckon. Sounds fairly involved, doesn't it? <laughs> well, they've got they've got a fundamental problem. They've got to shift this water up to the top of the pyramid for starters, right? Mm. And they've got to make a watertight seal for this thing that goes up the side of the pyramid, and so they've got to float the blocks inside that, and they sort of build it up layer by layer as they go and then they've got this another channel around the outside of the top of the pyramid where they're constructing them and then they float them into place and then they just cut the, the uh, floats off the top and they just sort of slide them into into place it's like oh really <laughs> yeah it's, it's simple really <laughs> so has this uh is this um a hypothesis met with some criticism do you know rod has it been criticized or a do some people think it's plausible? Oh, no, it's not even remotely plausible. I mean, it's, it's a cute thought, but you've got to apply Occam's razor to it, you know, which says if there's a simple solution to something or a simple answer, then uh, you choose that over the complicated one. And you think of how complicated it would be to, to build all this uh, plumbing around the pyramid. <laughs> you've got yeah. to, and you've got to get the water up there, so you need what sort of pumping system do they have? Yeah. How do they stop it from leaking? Mm. Well, and the fact they drew so many of the things they did on the pyramids and inside and all about the place, and we haven't seen any drawings of pipes, unless that's been missed, like the the man squirting water on the front of the sledge. (laughs) I I think uh, the simple solution is the right one. Uh, Yes, yes, I will always go for the simple one. Anyway, you've got to pay him. He's made this fancy video, as you can see on our Facebook site, about how he reckons they did it, and... uh, well, full marks to him for a bit of creative thinking, but uh, uh, zero out of ten for a plausible explanation. Perhaps <laughs> <laughs> he uh, went for a walk when he uh, thought of that idea. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> connecting to our earlier discussion about uh, some research suggesting that going for a walk can help you think creatively. 
Yeah, so yeah, it's one thing to have the creative idea, but then you've got to apply the rigour to it, and that's where the science comes in now. That's it. Definitely. Well, thanks very much for calling in, Rod. Good on you. No worries, and uh, we'll hear you back on our airwaves very soon, I'm sure. Yep, and today's Ask Fuzzy Bow before I go. Oh, yes, please. He's uh, dies. Now, a reader sent me a question, and he sat on a uh, his new couch with his... Uh, cheap shirt from the supermarket chain, mm-hmm. and I left a big red mark on the on his brand new sofa. Ooh. And so he sent me a question: How do stains work? So that's our answer in today's fuzzy ask fuzzy in the Canberra Times in Fairfax. Ah, I'll be interested to read the answer to that one. Yeah, and if you do have any questions that you want Ask Fuzzy to answer for you, uh, you can always send them in to our email address, askfuzzy at zoho, Z-O-H-O dot com, and uh, we'll do our best to answer them. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much, Rod, and uh, we'll catch you later. Catch you later. <laughs> Bye. Uh, Rod Taylor there, uh, another Fuzzy Logic presenter, just calling in to add his little bit to the uh, the pyramid debate on how the Egyptians actually made those pyramids. Um, the dyes one for the Ask Fuzzy today, though, is interesting too, because I, um, I forget, because I think things are getting much better at being dye fast, and then one day I, I forgot about that and uh, washed my white uh, bathrobe with my housemate's red sheets, right. and uh, I now have a pink bathrobe, unfortunately. <laughs> So maybe I'll have to read a bit more about stains and how I can get that pink out. Yeah, you might might get some tips uh, in the Ask Fuzzy column this week. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I have to have a read. Now, we were talking about walking and creativity before, but, Jared, you want to get onto some running. That's right. That's right. I mean, uh, we mentioned earlier, Brod, how you were over at ABC and you had to make a, a speedy journey over here to the 2XX studio. I did, very um, illegally driving at the speed limit from right. uh, from Northbourne down to the 2XX studios. Yes, um, and then I guess guess running along the footpath, you may have, may have seen Brod as a barely perceptible blur as he as he rushed up here into the uh, into the studio that's right i had my cake in one hand and my (laughs) my notes in the other and coming up here quickly quite a sight quite a sight (laughs) but uh you know as fast as broderick may be he is not close to the fastest land animal no Uh, not not at all close i'm afraid Brod. yeah Uh, and it's a record that has been recently reset recently displaced um by a californian mite with the species name P. macropalpus. Now, this speedy, tiny little mite moves at a speed of 322 body lengths per second. So, compared to the, the previous record holder, uh, which is the Australian tiger beetle, which moved at just 171 body lengths per second. Now, yeah. this is a, a way of kind of standardising the speed of different animals to take into account of the size of the animal itself, but... To put yeah. this in perspective, if, yeah. if Brod was in fact moving at the same relative speed as mm. the Californian mite, that is at 322 body lengths per second, Brod would be running at 2,000 kilometres per hour. 2,000? Through, through, through Good city, Lord. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So it's quite a remarkable, uh, remarkable record. Yes. Um, of course, in terms of absolute speed, mm. uh, the cheetah remains the record holder for land animals, 
uh, you know, running up to around 120 kilometres per hour. Mm. But this is just 16 body lengths per second for, for the cheetah, for the cheetah um, mm. compared to this mite, which uh, has been reported to move at 322 body lengths per second. Do you have the quite, mite speeding kilometres per hour? No, I'm afraid I, I don't oh. have that. Um, I don't have that information on me. Right. But, uh, it would be interesting to to, work to know what that is. Yeah, because yeah. I assume it would still be reasonably quick, even yeah. if the mite is rather small. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it must be fairly well moving along. <laughs> yeah. Well, from um, fast mites to uh, fast-thinking birds, uh, we've got a story about drongos here. And when I first saw this story, um, I thought, oh, it's all about drongos getting a feed. And I thought, well, you know, what's this story all about? Is it about lazy Australians trying to get food or, you know, the, the drunk bogans out there? But no, right. there is actually a bird called a drongo, Jared. <laughs> Um, I, I was not aware of the existence <laughs> of the drongo until this until this story came up. Mm, no, they, they seem to like to give birds funny names. There's a lot of strange bird names out there, but this is the drongo we're talking about, which is a, a bird from Africa. Um, and in fact, we're focusing on the African forktail drongo, which uh, looks a bit like a uh, uh, a small black bird or something like that, um, raven uh, type bird, and. Uh, what it's actually doing uh, down in Africa is it's tricking other bird species uh, to try and steal their food. Uh, right. <laughs> which is pretty crafty, pretty clever. Um, what they're doing is um, in, uh, in the Kalahari Desert, it's common for um, these birds to uh, perch above groups of ground foraging bird species and uh, meerkats as well, and then give the alarm when they spot danger approaching. Um, and then the, the species that are foraging respond to the alarm calls um, as much as calls from their own lookouts, and so they get out of there. Right. Um, and what they've found uh, in the research done out of the University of Cape Town along with the University of Western Australia is that the, uh, the drongos are now developing a technique that's a bit like the old fable, The Boy Who Cried Wolf. Right, the drongo that cried wolf. The drongo that cried wolf, <laughs> indeed. Um, because <laughs> when uh, when they notice that, uh, in fact, it was the southern pied babbler, another funny bird name, there you go, yes. the southern pied babbler who's, who'd be feeding, uh, they'd give the danger signal and the drongos would swoop in and steal the leftovers. Um, and uh, and then the babblers started realising that, oh, this is just a false alarm. Um, so they'd stop responding to the drongos' call. So then the drongos would mimic other bird species' calls. Um, so right. the pipe babblers would be like, oh, well, that's not the drongo, that's another bird. It must be a real, <laughs> real, real danger this time. Um, Extremely so, crafty, these yeah. drongos. Well, and, and the researchers have found that, you know, mostly the drongos' alarm signals are honest, but... <laughs> when they find a when they find a particularly large or juicy snack that their target animals are feeding on, the drongos give a false alarm call to kind of say, "Hey, I want that snack. You know, get out of there," right. um, and scare them away. Uh, so, so, the, you know, so the drongos are honest most of the time, are they? But just occasionally, the yeah. If it looks extra tasty, like this piece of like cake, this that, cake, yeah. That I'm Rod's surprised you haven't, the studio you know, today. sent me out the studio with a false alarm so <laughs> you right. get the rest of my cake. I may have to hit the fire alarm or something <laughs> here in a moment. <laughs> but, I mean, when you think about it, you know, it seems, like, really deceptive by the drongos, but in all honesty, um, animals use deception all the time to their advantage. Uh, you know, camouflage is, is right. probably the most common way where they camouflage to deceive other creatures and other animals. Um, but this is a fixed deceptive signal. Um, which is a bit different again. Uh, so, yeah, so interesting little study there. Um, 
outside uh, in Africa, working with the University of WA. Yeah, yes, I had had no idea about the uh, the craftiness of the Jongo. Mm. Um, but an issue which we do know a bit more about, uh, moving now from drongos and mites to much smaller organisms, microorganisms, uh, there's some important report actually coming out last week from the World Health Organization. They, who? The World Health Organization. Yeah, who? Who? Oh, right. Yeah, sorry. Okay. <laughs> Bad oh, joke. Right. Yeah. But, yeah <laughs> you, you got me with that one. Yes, otherwise known as who? WHO. So they released their first global report on antibiotic resistance um, quite uh, last week, and the findings of this report are quite quite sobering. Mm. Uh, a press release issued by the WHO states that antibiotic resistance is a serious threat that, and I quote, is no longer a prediction for the future. It's happening right now in every region of the world and has the potential to affect anyone of any age in any country. Uh, Dr. Fukuda, who is the Assistant Director General for Health Security at the WHO, warns that, and I quote here, without urgent, coordinated action by many stakeholders, the world is headed for a post-antibiotic era in which common infections and minor injuries which have been treatable for decades can once again kill, he Mm. says. So antibiotics here, we're referring to those drugs that serve to kill or inhibit the growth of bacteria. And they do this in in different ways, but disrupting processes within the bacteria which are essential to their growth or survival, such as the production of the bacterium's cell wall. And this this resistance to the antibiotic drugs can arise when there's a random mutation in a bacterium that allows that bacterium to survive the antibiotic treatment. That surviving bacterium then divides and grows to form a population of resistant bacteria, that is, they're resistant to the drugs, and it's these resistant strains, these resistant forms, that uh, is highlighted as an area of concern uh, in this report. Um, So, for example, um, uh, some of the organisms highlighted in the report include uh, E. coli, uh, which is a bacterium uh, involved in uh, urinary tract infections, uh, also resistant forms of gonorrhea emerging, uh, among others. Um, now, what what can we do? This is a, this yeah, is a huge. It's, it's very concerning, really, because you know our antibiotics have become such a huge part of our treatment for many many um, bacteria bacterial diseases that are affecting us. That, absolutely, absolutely, and uh, in some cases, the even sort of the last resort drugs uh, bacteria are becoming resistant to those in mm. some cases as well, which is certainly a reason for concern. But yeah. Um, Detailed in this report, there are recommendations that all of us can can do to help contribute to tackling this problem, or at least uh, at least attenuating it. So, for each of us, uh, some of the important things that include are only taking antibiotics when they are prescribed mm. by our doctor, and completing the full prescription, even though we may start to feel better before that. Uh, before that period is over, taking the full prescription is important. Oh, can that contribute to resistant bacteria? Can it? If that's, we don't complete it, that's right. Yes, yes. Um, even though you may start to start to feel better, um, it's important to take the full course uh, prescribed by a doctor in in order to ensure that that infection is uh, completely cleared. Oh, uh, otherwise, there there's there's that increased chance that some resistant bacteria may remain. Uh, and, and finally, of course, uh, not 
sharing your bacteria with uh, not sharing your <laughs> antibiotics. Well, you don't want to share your bacteria. Sure, no, that's either. a good plan too. But, <laughs> but uh, don't share your antibiotics with others and uh, not using your leftover prescriptions um, at a later date unless uh, directed to you by your doctor. These are some of the recommendations that the World Health Organization are making, as well as, of course, uh, we can take some simple measures like uh, washing our hands to help uh, prevent prevent infections as well mm. ah, very interesting well yeah some really simple stuff there that we can follow up on um which is probably quite important um well to keep in the medical world now um from uh, a story that's a bit of a worry to a story that's a bit of a, a breakthrough um this week uh, some australian researchers uh from the monash university in melbourne have uh, uncovered some of the molecular secrets of celiac disease uh, now, I've got a couple of friends who uh, have been diagnosed with celiac disease. For those who don't know, mm-hmm. it's, a, um, it's basically an intolerance, well, it's more than an intolerance towards gluten, um, but people with celiac disease can't eat uh, gluten-based products such as that contain wheat, rye, barley, oats and other grains, you know, mostly in breads, pastries, biscuits and cakes, but right. also tend to be in absolutely everything, you know, any wheat-containing products they just can't eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens is when someone with celiac disease eats food containing gluten, uh, the lining of their small intestine becomes f- inflamed um, and uh, that can be quite dangerous and can um, lead to more issues and um, possibly even death uh, yeah. if things get really bad um, for uh celiac people uh, but new p- research published this week uh, has a look at the interaction uh, between the immune system in people's bodies and certain peptides in gluten uh, certain parts that make up the gluten molecule um, and what they've found is that um, the for celiac people the small intestine is becoming inflamed uh, because the immune system is being activated against parts of gluten um, yeah. including certain peptides and uh, this immune activation starts when receptors on the body's T-cells recognise these peptides uh, presented on the surface of uh, the cells and um, start interacting with them. Um, and the T-cells are the cells that are there to protect our body and look after us. Right. Um, and uh, what they've found is that for 90 to 95% of celiac disease sufferers, uh, the special, they found the special protein that helps the T-cells to bind to the gluten peptides. Um, and uh, so they've um, helped to analyse these cells uh, using x-rays at the Australian Synchrotron um, oh, and yes. to look at the 3D structure of um, these cells. So you can actually see the, um, the amino acids that are involved in um, the binding process and how they interact right. in the body, uh, which is really important because then they can look at the bonds that are actually forming there and... Uh, what's actually happening and and so um they can start to design therapeutics to disrupt this interaction happening within the body so to disrupt this inflammation this reaction happening there you know it's certainly at the very early stages there um but it's it's really interesting in um developing uh some sort of fight against it because it's believed that um about 13 percent of um uh, sorry um Looking at this uh, this study, uh, it's found that 13% of Caucasians have uh, this gene um, 
that right. uh, that helps provide the proteins for the T cell receptor, but only one percent of the one percent of Caucasians actually have celiac disease. Um, so it's an interesting right. uh, study there. So just because you have that gene in your body doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get celiac disease, um, but it plays mm-hmm. a huge part in it. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah. So I think it's always always fascinating um, when we start to get down into the nitty gritty of uh, of how these different structures of the molecules involved in these processes interact because mm. uh, I guess understanding that interaction as you, as you pointed out can lead to a way to manipulate it or block it or or change it somehow so that's right and i think it's great because it's x-ray crystallography um which uh, for those regular listeners you might have heard um uh, Dr. Darren Goosen's talk on fuzzy logic about it earlier this year because t- this year is the International Year of Crystallography. Yes. Um, and Australia has had a huge role to play in that with uh, Sir um, William and Lawrence Bragg uh, winning the Nobel Prize uh, for their work on crystallography. Um, yes. And so I think it's interesting to see that, you know, going from the early 1900s right up to now is, you know, those techniques are still being developed and being used for applications such as this to see what's going on with molecules. Yes, yeah, the Bragg's a huge contribution to, to science, mm. absolutely. Yeah, so some very interesting crystallography research in the year of the same thing. Very interesting indeed. All right, the time is uh, 12.13, and uh, you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM, 2XX Community Radio. Time for a bit of a music break before Jared and I come back and uh, start wrapping up and talking about some more science from the week and some other science events that might be happening around Canberra. But for now, here's Norwegian... Norwegian Recycling there with their fantastic song, Miracles. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM, 2XX Community Radio, where we're not necessarily talking miracles today, but we are talking scientific breakthroughs, what's happening in the science world. And uh, an interesting one story came out this week that I quite liked is that a... Uh, a physicist from Melbourne, uh, from Melbourne, from Queensland, from Queensland University of Technology, has uh, been correcting the Oxford English Dictionary with a 99-year-old error uh, on a certain word in there. Right. Now, the word um, is interesting because it's um, siphon. Um, and so they defined siphon in the o- Oxford English Dictionary as uh, a pipe or tube of glass, metal or other material, bent so that one leg is longer than the other and used for drawing off liquids by means of atmospheric pressure, which forces the liquid up the shorter leg and over the bend into the pipe. Now, to be honest, I had a feeling that siphons had something to do with atmospheric pressure as well right. until I saw this article. And uh, what actually happens... Do you know how siphons work, Jared? No, I don't. I don't know. No. I, I once was uh, doing work experience at an aquaculture place and I had to use kind of a siphon to transfer these little fish from one tank to, a, to another. <laughs> you were siphoning the fish. <laughs> yes, yes. But uh, I don't... Yes, yes. Yeah. Tell me. Well, those, those fish would be pleased to know that it's not atmospheric pressure <laughs> that was forcing them through the siphon, but it was gravity right. um, that's actually making it occur. Um, and to prove this, uh, Dr. Stephen Hughes from Queensland's University of Technology uh, ran an experiment. And uh, for the experiment, he had a 1.5 metre high siphon uh, created with two buckets, one higher than the other, connected by tubing. And this was installed in a hyperbaric chamber, which is those chambers that they often use for sports people, as well as other things, which is um, controls for atmospheric pressure in there. And so they, they reduced the pressure within the chamber 
as though it was an, at an altitude of 40,000 feet. And um, a waterfall appeared at the top um, of the siphon, but the water flow remained nearly constant. Um, and it, uh, when they changed it to 41,000 feet, the siphon broke into two columns of water. But when returned back to 40,000 feet, it reconnected as nothing had happened. Um, so, which means that the, the fact that the water level in the upper lower buckets was constant indicated that atmospheric pressure is not pushing water into the siphon, um, and although it plays a role in the system, defining it as the actual f- operating force to cause right. that is incorrect. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so he's got the dictionary changed, and the Oxford Dictionary has now corrected the error and removed references to atmospheric pressure. Um, Unfortunately, Dr. Uh, Stephen uh, Hughes still believes that the uh, new entry is unfortunately ambiguous and still leaves question as to how a siphon actually works. Right. Um, but, you know, how much is the dictionary supposed to tell you? I suppose it's supposed to give you their definition, not yes, the explanation. that's true. But mm. it's interesting how enduring uh, some explanations for certain phenomena can be. Yeah. And then, uh, it really takes someone to ask, is that really how it works, and give it a test. Um, mm. Which is, you know, great thing about science, of course. That's right. You've got to actually test it out to show what's going on. Very important. Absolutely. But uh, speaking of new definitions, moving Mm. to other new things in science, um, I just wanted to ask you, first of all, uh, Broderick. Yes, Jared. You kind of you strike me as someone who might have a periodic table shower curtain in your <laughs> in your house. I do have a periodic table shower <laughs> curtain in my house. Yes, it's it's actually um, uh, very good because as I shower in the morning, I can go through it. I'm, I'm slowly getting you know hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, fluorine. Uh, oh, now I'm going to get stuck. That's that's an impressive start. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting my way through. I've got, I can normally make my way up to about cobalt or copper. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, there is some sad news for you, Broderick, and your shower curtain. In yeah. that, uh, you may need to pretty soon throw out that shower curtain and get a new one. Really? Uh, yes, because uh, I know it's a bit mouldy, but didn't think it was that bad. <laughs> the news. The news coming out last week actually is that the creation of a new element, element 117, uh, has been replicated. Um, So this element 117, uh, up until now, has had a a placeholder name of Ununceptium, (laughs) and it it was first reported uh, back in 2010 by a group of researchers in Russia, but now research based in Germany, in collaboration with researchers here at the Australian National University, have replicated that result and created four atoms of elements one uh, of element 117 so four atoms yes so not four grams four individual yes. atoms yep. of it just four atoms a, wow. an incredibly minuscule amount mm. um now adding a, a an element to the periodic table is a, is a pretty big big deal and it's yeah. not done not done rashly so there's a, a body called the uh, International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, or IUPAC, and the good folks at IUPAC are in charge of deciding whether there's sufficient evidence for the discovery of a new element. Okay. I, I'm not sure. So is, is four atoms sufficient? Well, it, uh, the, the IUPAC, as far as I'm aware, haven't commented on this latest report okay. so far, but by most reports, uh, they're quite optimistic that they will approve the discovery of element 117 and will be officially added to the periodic table of oh. elements because there, there was that earlier report as well back in 2010 uh, from a Russian research group. 
Uh, and, and in fact, we can only speculate about what the name might be if IUPAC give a green light to Element 117, though given that uh, those Russian researchers were involved to begin with, it's likely that they, they might choose a name. Yes. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned just four, at- oh, I mentioned earlier, just four atoms of this new element were produced. How did they go about creating this, this element? Well, mm, well put, it- put simply... Is yeah. it well? Because to me, like a new element. So element one one seven means that it's got one hundred and seventeen protons in the nucleus of it, and then however many neutrons they need to hold that together, and the yes. one hundred and seventeen electrons floating about too. Is mm-hmm. it something you can build up like Lego, where you just kind of put a, put a get a, get a neutron out the box and add that in with the proton and kind of combine them together? Well, it, it does seem to be a, a form of a kind of violent form of Lego in that you <laughs> kind of take. Uh, two existing elements yeah. and uh, collide them together in order to create a bigger new oh, so one. Ju- they're just throwing Lego at each other? Yep, basically. Just, just throwing Lego pieces at yep. other Lego pieces, <laughs> hoping that they will uh, stick together, essentially. Right. Um, so in, in this case, uh, the researchers fired a, a form of calcium, which has 20 protons, yep. at another element called berkelium, which has 97 Protons. Right, so 97 so, plus yep. 20 makes 117. Yep, ah. that's, that's how it works. Um, easy. No, it, sound, it sounds quite easy, but, yeah. um, the way that we've discussed it today, but of course it is a, an incredibly demanding and challenging endeavour to produce these elements. And in fact, the researchers had to fire 10 to the 9 calcium atoms or 10 billion billion calcium atoms at the berkelium nucleus in order to wow. uh, achieve what they did with creating their four atoms. Do they do it all at once? 117. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure yeah. how the process works. Yeah. I, I imagine it's a, a, a cycle, uh, you know, a, a process. But yeah, and no, I'm to, just wondering whether like, they do it one at a time and hope for the best or whether they just put a whole lot in together right. and hope that something hits. Yeah, yeah, yeah good question. But uh, nonetheless, uh, a hugely challenging process um that's involved now may may wonder what uh, what the point of doing this kind of research is are we likely to have a new bicycle frame made out of element 117 <laughs> well it's uh not likely a lot of these synthesized elements only last a very short amount of time before they break down they undergo radioactive decay and in, uh. in this case uh just a just a fraction of a second less than tenth of a second and it just pops away element 117 right. is gone before you know it yeah but uh while these elements may not have direct applications they are useful for trying to really understand what's going on with atoms and what holds them together and and how what makes for a stable nucleus and how to um understand the nucleus so the the research has that benefit of uh, contributing to our under fundamental understanding of these uh, atomic structures and processes awesome yeah awesome. so uh sad news though for you brod uh, in that if the upac do give it the green light yeah. then you may need to get a new shower curtain might have to get my permanent marker out and write it in manually right. yes i think that can, would be a good <laughs> approach as well better is that <laughs> yeah Oh, very interesting indeed. Well, I think that just about wraps it up for our science today here on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, But before we come back next week, there are a few events that are happening around Canberra if you're interested in science and keen to check out some more. Um, At the ANU this week, there's a couple of public lectures that are happening. Uh, The ANU EMS Society is... uh, 
putting together a talk uh, with their resident Mars rover expert, Dr Penny King, who's talking about exploring Mars with the Curiosity rover. Uh, And uh, Curiosity touched down on the Martian surface early in August 2012, and since then it's made a whole range of miraculous discoveries by inspecting the planet's geology and chemistry. And uh, Dr King has an extensive knowledge of the mission goals and how they're attempting to be fulfilled. So she's talking about that on uh, Tuesday the 6th of May from 6 o'clock, and that's happening at the ANU School of Research, uh, Research School of Earth Sciences. Uh, For more details, check out billboard.anu.edu.au. And uh, while you're at Billboard, you can also check out another public lecture that may be of interest to Fuzzy Logic listeners, and that's a public health... uh public lecture about hearing loss in older adults uh, with uh, Dr Frank R. Lin, who's an assistant professor of otolaryngology. Oh, gosh, I should have practised that, shouldn't I? <laughs> otolaryngology uh, and works with the, uh, at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, so he's visiting uh, and sharing some of the interesting news about his research in age-related hearing loss in older adults um, and what uh, his studies actually show for that. Um, so that's happening on Wednesday the 7th of May at 11 o'clock at the ANU in the Innovations Lecture Theatre uh, down there. Again, check out billboard.anu.edu.au for more details. And finally, this week at the Questacon Technology Learning Centre over in Deakin, uh, they're having a talk on past, present and future, a 3D printer's perspective. Uh, backed by popular demand, this is another chance to see our sem- their seminar on uh, 3D printing and uh, the advantages, possibilities and issues surrounding it as we move into the future. Uh, as the talk goes on, they will be having 3D printers printing uh, different objects like gears toys and lost game parts almost anything you can think of uh so please feel free to come along and uh check it out um the event's free at six o'clock wednesday the 7th of may at the questacon technology learning center in deacon uh for more details check out questacon.edu.au well, thanks very much for coming in this morning, Jared. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure, and uh, thanks for holding the fort while I rushed over from ABC. I'm really keen to finish off this uh, cake that Lish gave me on uh, ABC Triple Six Canberra, right. and uh, I will be posting the experiment that I did on Triple Six. Uh, they're going to put that online, so I'll post a link to that on our Fuzzy Logic Facebook page. So if you're keen, you can check it out on there and uh, follow us on Facebook. Just type in Fuzzy Logic and look for the autumn leaf. Or if you want to listen to this episode again or any of our old episodes, just head to fuzzylogic on 2xx.podbean.com or type in Fuzzy Logic into iTunes and you can have a listen to our podcasts. We'll be back at the same time next week, 11.30 on Sunday, right here on 98.3 FM for more Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.